Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41 this morning. As we will be reading the entire chapter this morning and looking at how God fills Joseph with his spirit and what a difference that makes in Joseph's life and how that points forward to a greater one to come. Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 1, this is the word of God. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream." So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And all the land of Egypt was famished. The the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So far, the reading of God's own holy word, may it as blessing to the reading and proclamation of this morning. This is, this is an amazing story. Joseph is 
despised, he's falsely accused, he's put in prison, and it seems like all of a sudden he's raised to be the leader or second only in command to Pharaoh over all Egypt, even indeed over all the earth, as verse 57 tells us. They, people from all over the world are coming or all over the earth are coming to him because the famine was severe. His steadfastness is, is remarkable. He must have he must have hid this, this, these stories that he heard of his ancestors in his heart because he doesn't have a Bible when he's there in, in Egypt. He doesn't have family teaching him that, that this God whom he serves is, is faithful and true. And here he is with his eyes on the Lord as, we, as we're going to see this morning. And as we, as we look at that, just notice how small a thing can, can change a person's trajectory, his life. In this case, Pharaoh has some dreams and he's troubled by them. Well, in those days, the dreams of the rulers were seen as significant. Royal dreams were significant because they were seen as, as representatives of the gods. And so these dreams were, were, taught, to, or were thought to be significant. Well, what's this, what's this being said? And rulers, if they were going to give those dreams, would also then want to know what it meant. Now, we often forget all of our, we often forget our dreams. Occasionally, we remember details here and there, but Pharaoh remembers all the details of his dreams. And after he tells them to his magicians, to his wise men, to all those in his court, no one can interpret anything. And after this complete and utter failure of these, these men, the Lord brings Joseph to the mind of the chief cupbearer. You remember from our last chapter when Joseph had interpreted the dreams for the chief cupbearer and for the baker, he had said to the cupbearer, when you are restored, remember me. And now two years later, as Joseph had been in prison for two years, the cupbearer says to Pharaoh, verse 9, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I. We had these dreams, and a young Hebrew interpreted them. And they came, as he said it, so it came to pass. He reminds, he's reminded of Joseph. And Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and he repeats his dreams to him. After Joseph hears the dreams, he repeats the details again. Now, I want you to have a little test of honesty here this morning. If this text is in your devotional for morning breakfast devotions, are you reading all 57 verses? Or do you think, oh, it's just repeating. It's, it's, it's the dreams and then, and then Joseph said, and he gives the details again. We know what, what it's already said. Is there something going on here? Why, when there's, when there's limited space on a piece of papyrus or whatever they're writing these, uh, the, these accounts on, this divine word of God, why repeat all of the details? And I was thinking to myself, it, it is a rather lengthy text. Do we read the whole thing? Yeah, we read the whole thing to get the impact, to, to get the emphasis that, that these details are important and the repetition of them is important. And the commentators make note of this. They, they make note of this contrast between good and ugly, good and, uh, we could say, evil. The, the, the root in the, for the word ugly is also the, the, the root for the word evil, ra in the Hebrew, good and evil. 
And one commentator writes, the writer's emphasis on good and evil, this repetition, sets the reader up to see Joseph's ability to distinguish between good and evil. Such a picture suggests that in the story of Joseph, the writer is returning to one of the central themes of the beginning of the book, the knowledge of good and evil. And Joseph is able to discern between them, and it's clear that such knowledge comes from where? Children, from where? What does Joseph keep saying over and over and over again? The knowledge comes from God. How do we know what's good? How do we know what's evil? Only as we submit to God. Not the culture, not to popular opinion, not to what we might be feeling at any given moment, but to what God says. To know the difference between good and evil, a person must listen to God. And Joseph mentions that again and again. He says, God will give to Pharaoh an answer. God will do this, not me. He is unlike Adam and Eve in this, in this way. Adam and Eve, when they're tested to say, well, did God really say? Do you really have to go that route? Couldn't you? Do you think maybe there's, there's a reason that he's holding something back? And they said, yeah, maybe there is something to that. And they took of the fruit. Joseph says, I see the good and the evil in this dream. And I want to tell it to you so that you might learn, listen, and be spared. This is not just a humble position that Joseph takes, recognizing God as the giver of interpretation of this dream. It also is a courageous position. He could have simply said, just tell me your dream without mentioning anything about God. Why why bring God into it? If he thinks God is going to help him interpret the dream, that's fine. Keep it to yourself. What if Pharaoh doesn't like that? What if he he finds that objectionable? Why don't you just say, well, tell me your dream and I'll give you the interpretation. There's, There's courage in this. He wants to point all those listening to the one true God. He's done this before. He did the same thing in the jail of, of, of Potiphar, right? When he says to the cupbearer and to the baker, tell me your dreams. God will give the interpretation. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do, verse 25. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do, verse 28. Very soon God will bring about what you have seen, verse 32. It's hard to miss. And so often we're afraid to talk that way, aren't we? God will show you. God will point the way. Why, why, why won't we say that? Why are we so afraid to say that? Well, maybe it's because of consequences, right? We think of consequences. What, what will happen if, if we say that? People might not like us. They might, you know, they might reject us. They might cancel us. Joseph doesn't worry about the consequences. As he's speaking about God, he perhaps has in the back of his mind he could be sent back to prison. But he is unafraid, unashamed to speak of God. 
and he's confident that God is with him, that God is going to, to lead in his life. And that's something that we need to remember whenever we have opportunity to speak about God and to, to point people to him. We let, that, we let those consequences just be what they're going to be. We want to be faithful, courageous, pointing people to their place of their only, only hope. Why is, he, why is he speaking of God? Well, it's because the Spirit of God is in him. Pharaoh notices this. We see verses 37 and 38. He gives this proposal. He not only interprets the dream, he gives proposal about how they should, should deal with this coming uh, 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 boom and bust, this, or this, this uh, great uh, blessing of grain and then the coming famine. He tells them what they're to do. And the proposal, and this is interesting in the Hebrew, it doesn't see, show it in the English, but in the Hebrew, verse 37 says, and the proposal, they saw that it was good. That's an interesting statement. Where have we heard that before? going back to the beginning of Genesis. And she saw that the fruit was good, but was it? It was good for food, but was it right for her to take? Here they hear this proposal that this man is giving them, he's pointing them to, the, to, to, to God for the answer of their, uh, their present circumstance. And they say, this is good, or they saw that it was good. Joseph's a wise, discerning man in whom the Spirit of God rested. Even Pharaoh recognizes this. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's likely not understanding that this is the one true God. He's saying, well, it's one of the gods. The Egyptians had many gods. He says, well, the God, Spirit of God is in him, and he's saying more than he knows. Joseph was a man filled with the Spirit of God. James Boyce makes this observation. This is the first mention in the Bible of the Holy Spirit's coming upon a man. And what effect that the Spirit had, what, he, what effect he had on Joseph. Let's think about it. Joseph spoke with kindness and clarity. God is about to do something big in Egypt. He's a, about to do something. There's a, there's, a, there's a kindness. God, God's telling you, he's revealing to you what is going to come to pass. And I want you to know it. And I want you to know how to prepare for it. He speaks with kindness and clarity. The way that Pharaoh and his officials respond to Joseph's interpretation is a matter of life and death. It's a, it's a matter of being delivered or of facing famine unprepared, death unprepared. I want to look briefly at two things about Joseph and his wisdom. Joseph's wisdom recognized. It's, it's noted in his character and his commitment. The fact that he's filled with the Spirit of God, it's identified that he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's wise and he has a character and commitment that is, that is affected by it. First, Joseph's character. He's fearless because he knows that God is with him. It's not merely an observation of the Bible that we've seen already in chapter 39. It's a testimony of Joseph as he looks back on his life some years later. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He sees that God is working and that God has been faithful and that God will continue to work through the events of his life. He knew he would not be lost to history. He knew that he would not be fruitless or forgotten. He not only interprets the dreams, he gives wise counsel on what they ought to do. And when they heard his counsel, they 
saw that it was good. And there in that moment, Pharaoh raises him up over the whole land. He says, you're going to be over the whole land. Only to me, only to the throne, as to the throne will be second to me. He gives him a ring of power, a clothing to identify him as a man of high rank, jewelry around his neck. He gives him a chariot and he gives him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. And they, what's, what's being said there is we want you wholly enculturated. We want you to be like us. We want you to be one of us. Well, let me ask you, people of God, young people, what would you do if you were promised power and fame and fortune and all of the blessings, if you just become like us. That's all it's going to cost. Just become like us. What do you do? That's the promise that you see so much in marketing, the message of the culture today. Just wear what we wear. Just say what we say. Just do what we do. And... We'll be happy, and you'll be happy. Just become like one of us. Take that name that we give you. Don't receive the name child of God as we see, as we observe it when God sets forth his covenant promises on a child in baptism. This is my child. Don't, don't. That's not a big deal. That has no meaning. That doesn't, that's not significant. That's just something that you do. It's just a cultural thing, is it? Or are we recognizing what God promises? And then committing to something. To a way that God have us to go. Remember, Joseph's fairly young at this age. I mean, at, at this stage, he's, he's 30 years old, and he's, he's seen the underbelly of Egypt. He's seen the prison system. He's seen all this. It's very tempting to say, man, I got, I've got a ring. I've got a robe. I've got a chariot. I've got jewelry. I'm going to do whatever I can to not lose this. If it means to become like them, then I'm good. That's what I'm going to do. He's surrounded by those who are saying to him, we like you. We think your ideas are good. Now, just become like us. Now, I don't think I have to convince you that today the people in power are largely in power because of those around them. Oh, they may spout this and spout that, but they recognize that if they don't keep the people around them happy, they're not going to be in position of authority very long. You know the saying, the neck is what moves the head, right? We say, well, the head's the most prominent, but it's the neck that moves the head. Well, very often it's those around the person in power. Well, if you're in power, you recognize it and you say, well, I'm going to do pretty much what those around me tell me to do. And I'm going to pretend, I'm going to tell myself I'm in power, but remembering that I'm not going to stay there on my own. Very tempting to just say, wow, I better listen carefully and I better do what those around me say so that it might appear as though I'm still in power. Joseph 
Joseph certainly could have been forgiven for having the thought in the back of his head, I'll do whatever I have to do to stay out of prison. But Joseph still has his mind set upon the Lord. How do we know that? Well, it's recorded in, when, in, in, the, uh, in the fact of his offspring. He has uh, two sons with his wife, his Egyptian wife, and he gives them names. What does he name them? He names the one Manasseh. Sounds like the Hebrew for making me forget. And then he says this, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. He says, the Lord is with me. That's the one whom I serve. Now, he doesn't, we're going to see later, it doesn't mean that he forsakes his family, that he rejects his family. What he's saying is, I no longer long after that. You remember, he had the robe, children, he had the robe, and he had the, his father's favor, and he, he kind of lost all that. He might have pined for that, yearned for that, and said, boy, one day I'm going to get, I want to get back there and, and have that. He says, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not fixated on that anymore. I'm going to serve the Lord here and now, where I am. That's, a, that's the meaning there where behind that word, God has made me forget all my hardship and, and my father's house, my, my yearning for those things. Then he says, with his second son, he names him Manasseh. Sounds like the Hebrew for making me forget, or making me fruitful, excuse me. And then he says this, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He will not be fruitless. He will not be forgotten where the Lord has made him fruitful. This is an amazing story. Not only is it a rags-to-riches story, but it's a story of, of what the Spirit of God is meant to do in the people of God. Joseph did not waver. He did not worship the gods of the Egyptians or give his children over to be raised by them. He's steadfast in serving the Lord where the Lord has placed him. And then we have to ask ourselves, does the world take notice of, of a difference in me? Does does the world notice that I'm different? Could they tell that I'm not serving the gods that they serve, that I'm not longing after the things that they long after, pursuing the things they're pursuing? Is there a noticeable difference in my character? And Joseph's the kind of ruler the nation needed. He's the kind of person the world needs today. Gracious, compassionate, abounding in love, slow to, to anger, forgiving, can you imagine what he would have done, well, well, what you would have done if you would have seen the cupbearer as you come into Pharaoh's court after two years? How would that have gone in your own heart? How could you forget me? What is your problem? And yet Joseph does not do that. He recognizes there, there are things out of his side of his control, but he's not worried about them. He He's growing in wisdom and in favor with God and man, as we see here. Well, less complete Joseph's commitment, secondly. Joseph's commitment to love God, we're not going to say as much about that, but there's much that could be said. But his commitment to love God flowed out in his commitment to love others. Seven years of prosperity come to Egypt, and Joseph doesn't go out on a bender and say, wow, this is great, we're going to party like it's whatever year it was. Instead, he doesn't say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He doesn't get overcome with the prosperity. He's committed to Pharaoh and to the, to the nation of Egypt. And as we'll see, to those who come from all over the earth. Why does he have that commitment? Well, because he lived by his own counsel. What's your commitment? 
What's my commitment? Does it match what we say we believe? God is coming. There is an end. Are we ready? Or do we say, well, yeah, that's coming, but we're in the seven years of prosperity. We're just going to live it up. We'll worry about that some other time. Do people watch and say, well, that's kind of how we live. What's the difference? Or do we say, no, God is coming all my life. Each and every day, I'm to be living as light. I'm to be living in a way that is pleasing to him. Is that, does my commitment reflect my confession? What I confess, is it seen in the way that I live? He stores food in all of the cities. He goes around. He's not just sitting back saying, well, it's all going to come in. He goes around. He's, he's storing the food in all the cities. Does this until it could no longer be measured? Why? Because he believes the word of the Lord that there is a famine coming. And they need to be ready. Are you ready? Am I ready? Do we live like that? That whenever the Lord returns, we are ready. Are we committed to living by the word we profess? Or do we show it only when we're together? We say, well, we gather together here. That's important. And it is. But what does it look like the rest of the week? The rest of the month? The rest of the year? Just moving ahead to the next planning of the next party, the next event, what is it? Or are we living for God and for those around us? In the way we keep our books, in the way that we use our resources, get a little extra, what do we do? Spend a little bit more, build a little bigger shed so we can fit our toys in there? Or do we say there's there's a world that is under famine, that needs to know the bread of life, will they see that that's our hope, our food for daily life? Well, Joseph's rise to power looks ahead to the exaltation of another who's despised and rejected, to another who was perfectly wise, looks forward to the one who left his home in heaven and came down, humbled to the dust, not grasping after what he left. And see those words that where Joseph says, I've forgotten my home. It's not means he, he's forgotten, but that he's, but he's let go of that, that he might serve, that he might work for the good of those around him here and now in his place. So too, Jesus, not grasping, Paul says in Philippians 2, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, something to held on to, but he came down, taking on weakness, not looking for fame, not looking for fortune, came down, to live among us, to show us what it looked like to have God as first and foremost. In weakness, he's humbled before he's exalted. Joseph looks back not only to Adam in the garden and what happened there, but he points forward to Christ, the second Adam, the one filled with grace and truth. When he came to earth, he did not quarrel or cry out against his enemies, but spoke lovingly to all. He was filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was upon him. 
He gave the good news that sets people free from the coming pestilence, from the coming death. By his redemptive work, he seals that day when we will participate in the banquet that our Father is preparing for us if we are trusting in him. That when all of this pain, when all of this trial and tribulation, and we don't even know the half of what some people know, but in the, in the difficulties, that when these come to an end, there is something far better. And that's how we're living. We're not treasuring up here. We're living here for what's to come. We're not living for stuff. We're living for relationship. And it shows today. Christ opens the way that those of all the earth who are facing severe famine and certain death, that that way might be opened to know the bounty of God, even eternal life. He served others in life and in his death to win the Spirit so that all who would ask for the Spirit, would know the way of wisdom and live committed to it. So many today want Jesus to just get them out of their present circumstance. They want him to get them out of that seven-year famine. Well, yeah, I believe in If Jesus would just get me out of this, then I'd, be, I'd believe in him. Sure, I'll believe in him. And then when it's all over, they say, well, thank you for that, and on they go. Well, that's not the call. The call isn't just look to Jesus to get you through this little hitch here, this little difficulty. The call is to believe on him for everlasting life and to be changed forever, starting now. And when we do that, we don't need to clamor after the things of the world. We don't need to doubt that life is ours. We, all our sins are paid for. All our, our place in heaven is secure for Christ has reconciled God to man. And the one who has the Spirit of God in him knows this and lives like this and will point all people to God, for to him belongs all the praise and the glory. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we read these lengthy passages and we perhaps reflect on these individuals for a moment and we pick the pieces and parts that we like, but there is so much more here, all pointing forward to your Son, in whom there is life. Not just future, but now. A life which calls us to put to death the sins that we have today, the the idols that we have before us now, so that we in our words and in our deeds, we would show that you are our only hope and our greatest treasure. Lord, help us to live that way. Purify our thoughts. Stir our hearts, as we're going to hear tonight, that we might want to live for you each and every day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.